And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is The Travel Show, in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be talking about travel. And we'd love to have you join that conversation. In fact, sometimes the guests on this show have written to me. They do so at FromerTravelShow at Yahoo.com. Whether you're involved in the travel industry in some way or are a traveler with a question or a would-be traveler, you never know nowadays in this weird, weird time of no travel for most of us. Uh, but email me at FromerTravelShow at Yahoo.com and Remember that Fromers.com, our website, is a wellspring, not just of how-to travel information, but of really, really fun, interesting items on culture, on sociology, on history, on cuisine, on all of the great things that made us want to travel in the past and hopefully makes us want to read about different locations, different communities, different nationalities right now. So we hope you'll visit us at Fromers.com. Also, don't forget, we're on social media. Look for the word Fromers, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S, on Pinterest, on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Instagram. Now, on previous broadcasts of this program, we have spoken quite candidly about the difficulty of traveling during this time of national emergency. But we have said that it is therefore quite appropriate that we should also speak about what travel means to us, almost as a prelude to the time when travel will again continue at its earlier pace. Travel has taught me a great many things. It has taught me first that all the peoples of the world are basically the same in their outlooks and in their interests. On numerous occasions, I have visited the homes of people who look and talk quite exotically. They, they look different from us. And yet they are all talking about the very same thing with a, a Japanese couple in Tokyo. They were talking about the fact that their eight-year-old daughter was complaining about the uh, harshness of her third-grade teacher. So <laughs> they, they talk about the same thing. And those Americans who tend to uh, demonize such people or to regard them as exotic, uh, different people, they have not learned the, la- the lesson of travel which is that all people of the world are basically alike in their outlooks and in their interests. Now, I have also learned uh, through travel that all the people in the world think of themselves virtuous. I remember <laughs> an evening in a, in a bar in Amsterdam where a Dutch friend of mine was telling me about the uh, telethon that had been shown on Dutch TV the earlier evening that had uh, gathered or rather had caused uh, several million people to make contributions toward cancer research. And in telling me about this, he then said, only in Holland, in no other country, <laughs> could, such, could such a result be obtained. We all tend to, ourse- we, uh, tend to tell ourselves 
that our country is is superior. How many times do you hear a politician in the United States claiming that this country is the best country in all, in all the world, uh, that this is a country where the people are, are unusually suited to the uh, challenges of life? Well, well this, this is not so. Uh, and all the people of the world think themselves virtuous. Right. I, I have, Pauline, I have also learned through international travel that we are all responsible for each other. I remember a time when I stood on a sidewalk in Zagreb, Yugoslavia, and I saw uh, people from all parts of Yugoslavia who were dancing together in a folklore festival. There were there were uh, Muslims and and Christians. There were people from different parts of of, of uh, Yugoslavia, rather. And it was only years later that I felt almost uh, physically uh, angered or physically hurt by the thought that they were now all killing each other, that, that these people who had danced in the folklore festival had, had now turned into being uh, uh, difficult people. Yeah, they, that was a terrible uh, war. Thank God that, what, that war is over now. Well, travel teaches you that also that you confront your opposites when you when you when you travel considerably i remember a time uh, when i went to a uh, a school on the west coast and i was told to stand in front of an elderly gentleman and, and and hug him around his shoulders and look into his eyes and tell him that i would always be his his uh, helper and i remember later having felt so ashamed that I had been loath to, to, to respond in that way. I had been loath to relate it to him as if he were another human being. And, and, and that, uh, that has caused me to, be, to have a considerable understanding of travel. So this was a very uh, new-agey school. Was it Esalen that you went to? It, you know, it was Esalen. It was yeah. a, it was also a New Age school where the uh, teachers were ma- were talking about such uh, ideas as to me sounded exotic and 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 uh, far far off. And yet, I remembered that I felt that this was quite uh, natural what they were doing. I, that they were that there was a great deal to say for what they were doing. And that is a lesson that travel has uh, teach to, taught myself. Travel has made me confront my uh, opposites and to be comfortable with people that I would call my opposites. Uh, travel has also taught me that there is more than a single solution uh, to the problems of the world. On my trips in Hong Kong, I have walked down streets, past uh, stores, drug stores, selling various medications, and inside are people who are purchasing medications that I would never dream of using, and yet they were happy with what they were doing, and they felt that they had improved their lives by taking these odd uh, uh, medications. Herbal concoctions and things of and, that and, sort. And thus, I, and thus I learned that in travel there is more than one resp- response, there is one more that solution uh, to the problems that we encounter in travel. I also have met in various trips through Europe uh, people who believe that it is absolutely positive, it is absolutely normal to have a law in their country stating that you could not fire a person after they had worked for you for six months. Imagine if we had such a such a a rule within the United States, and yet even the most conservative of people 
taught me that they believed that this was the only sensible thing to do in an economic context. And that they and travel has thus taught me to regard travel to these solutions to travel problems as being or, more than one and, uh, or, or and not to life just problems. us Americans. Yes, of uh, course. Pauline, travel has taught me what it is like to be the member of a minority. I have felt like that whenever I go to the great streets of China and I walk down those streets passing thousands and thousands of Chinese people and I think to myself that uh, in their eyes, I am a minority. And it was this is one of the few occasions when I felt like a minority. And I believe that all people should experience that particular con- uh, situation. Uh, you probably have had exactly, exactly the same experience. Sure. That you, Travel teaches you what it is like to be a minority. Uh, I felt that way in Tanzania recently. Yes, absolutely. I felt that way in Tanzania recently when I was in Zanzibar. Because you were in Tanzania with an African people, and yet you were the minority and they were the majority. Exactly. Uh, Travel for some people is not a mere recreation, but for others it is an important form of education. It impacts the mind in a way that somehow no other activity, even that the activity of widespread le- uh, reading, can quite do. It has changed my life and has made me into a different sort of a person. So let us reflect on the importance of travel within our lives. Yes. We are the first generation in human history to be able to travel to other continents as easily as people once boarded a trolley to go to the next town. We should be aware of that that uh, wonderful gift that is unique to us. Uh, we should await an end to our present uh, concerns and, sure. and, and, and dares. Dare we hope that a better form of people will result from that experience of travel and that's how travel has changed my life. And I've been thinking about that a great deal recently. Well, let me when say I, that... When I, when I confront a situation where it is difficult, if not impossible, to travel. Right. And let me say that if you want to... A dad actually wrote an essay on this, which is why it's front of mind. And you can read it. It's on the cover of Fromers.com uh, right now. Um as are many other wonderful articles. Uh, interestingly, we have something about the best movies to watch if you want to scratch that travel itch, one of which is The Motorcycle Diaries. And at the end of that, it's about a, a trip Che Guevara took when he was a 23-year-old before he was a rebel gorilla. And he says at the end of the movie, this journey has changed me Tremendously, I'm no longer myself, or I'm a different version of who I was. And, and travel to, has changed the life of somebody that you would think was absolutely fixed in his in his concerns and in, right. in his ideas, and yet travel changed his life absolutely. and made him into a different person. It did. It did. Uh, so we have to take a break, but don't turn that dial. It's going to be a fun show, so we hope you'll stick with us.
You're listening to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my dad, Arthur Fromer, and our next guest has a name I think you'll know. He is Josh Gates. He is the host of the wildly popular Expedition Unknown on the Discovery Channel. Hey, Josh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure. So often I speak with travel writers, and I usually ask them, why is travel so important? But I want to ask you a slightly different question. Why is knowledge of the past so important for the people who watch your show? Why, why, why does that matter? Well, big question, right? Yeah, and, huge uh, existential it, question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it. I think it does matter in ways big and small. I mean, uh, you know, on our last season of Expedition Unknown, we did a big two-part special on ancient human ancestors. And it was a really eye-opening program because it's a literal look at where we all came from. You know, looking into our past is looking into our own biography. Uh, and what's really incredible is that that biography is being rewritten as we speak. You know, we are learning so much about where we came from. And so I think looking at our past matters in all sorts of ways. I think that when we, when we look at our our actual human past, uh, we find out a lot about the DNA inside of us and that we're actually this amalgam of all of the people who came before us. And so that means something in terms of who we are and how we behave and what our instincts are. But I also just think culturally it matters. You know, when we, you know, something that, of course, used to happen in kind of aristocratic Europe was the the grand tour, right? Mm. That every Mm -hmm. young, young person was expected to go and visit you know, Greece and Rome and, and kind of see from whence we all culturally came. And I think that though we've kind of lost that um, in, in many ways as this codified thing that we do, I do think it's important to go and look at the, look at the cultures that birthed our, our language, our democracy, our, our society. I think it just tells us who we are. You know, it, 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 I, I always say that, you know, going away uh, exposes you to other places and other things, but it also just teaches you so much about home and right. about where you, where you came from. And who you are as a person. For and sure. this is something I realized recently, and just a little background, Josh and I are part of a traveling circus of sorts. Uh, <laughs> we appear at travel and adventure shows around the country. Uh, uh, Josh gives a speech, I give a speech, and we run into each other here and there, and I discovered that Josh was an uh, uh, art archaeology major at my daughter's alma mater. My daughter is at Tufts right now. You went there. So this is something you've been thinking about for decades now. Yes. Go Jumbos, first of all. (laughs) But um, yeah, you know, I grew up um, with a a variety of weird interests, but one of them was archaeology. And I make no bones about it. That had everything to do with Indiana Jones. Right. (laughs) You know, I was a child of the 80s. And so Raiders and uh, the Goonies and things like that, they were just on repeat in my house. I mean, I, I loved the idea of, uh, of adventure and, and all that kind of stuff, but I also just loved the idea of digging into uh, our, our collective past. I thought it was such a cool thing, and when I went to school, I got um, kind of mesmerized by that idea, and I ended up, to the, to the total horror of my parents, double majoring <laughs> in drama and archaeology. Wow, so big they, money I mean, there. They, <laughs> yeah, I know two 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 fields, you know, known for their high earnings, and um, so. Uh, but you know, I had this real passion for storytelling uh, and for performing, and and also for 
history. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's something that's been kind of rattling around in my brain for a long time. Well, and you bring that passion to your show. One of the most interesting, to me at least, recent episodes had to do with the Dead Sea Scrolls and the fact that archaeologists feel that there may be more. Before we get into that, can you explain for our listeners, because I think people, everybody knows the word Dead Sea Scrolls, but maybe people have forgotten what they were. If you can explain that first. So the Dead Sea Scrolls are these uh, ancient uh, manuscripts uh, that were found in a series of caves uh, in the Judean desert in in what's now Israel. And and they are effectively the oldest copies um, of the Old Testament on earth. So these are the oldest copies of of the Hebrew Bible. They also contain other works beyond just uh, the Old Testament. There are some more kind of... um, mystical um, ancient Hebrew writings in there. But these are, these are really uh, important documents. I mean, they are the underpinnings of uh, Judaism and Christianity, and they, they are, you know, uh, as I said, these incredibly old copies of these, of these documents that inform a lot of people's faith. So they have their own really kind of exciting history. They were discovered by accident um, by a young Bedouin boy that was uh, in the 1940s, mm-hmm. uh, who was up there tending goats or sheep or something and threw a, a rock, uh, supposedly, and heard it kind of ricochet and break something in a, in a little cave there, and he found these jars. And soon, um, these caves that, you know, kind of litter these, litter these cliffs there on the edge of the Dead Sea turned out to be holding one of the greatest archaeological treasures uh, in, in history. And it set off this huge race to um, recover these scrolls. A lot of them ended up on the black market and had to be um, recovered back to the Holy Land. And so there's a whole kind of adventure as to how these things uh, kind of almost got lost again. Uh, but they are now housed uh, primarily in Israel. There's, there's one uh, scroll that's housed in, in Jordan. A few mm. of them are housed privately, but most of them are, are, are in Israel. And they're in the, at and the yeah, Israel it, Museum uh, in they, Tel Aviv. They are. They have their own. Yeah, fabulous. they have their own. Um, yeah, they have their own museum. And uh, and but you know these are documents that are still being preserved and studied. I mean, what's really incredible about them is that some of them were in a million little pieces, and they're mm. still today working to. Um, restore them, to put them back together. Uh, and they are also still excavating in these caves, trying to find new scrolls. A few years ago, a new scroll was found. It was blank, uh, oh. but it, it showed that there are still parchments to be uncovered in the caves of Qumran. And so it's a really exciting uh, story and, and uh, partially to go and see uh, archaeologists trying to find new materials, but also to go to the conservation labs and to see this incredibly detailed work that has to be done to preserve these documents, which are so fragile. It's like if you sneezed on them, they would disintegrate, Mm. you know? And so um, I remember we went there and they took the glass off of one of these and it was the oldest copy uh, of the Ten Commandments in existence. Wow. And uh, and I just could, I couldn't breathe, you know, just standing there looking at this, uh, looking at this document in front of me. So really, really special experience to be able to go and see those up close and personal. We are speaking with Josh Gates of Expedition Unknown, uh, which you can watch on the Discovery Channel. And it's just the beginning of our conversation. We have to take a short commercial break, but we'll be back with more after these messages.
Welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. When we left, we were speaking with Josh Gates of Expedition Unknown, which you can watch on the Discovery Channel. I highly recommend it. And Josh, you're in the middle of filming your next season. What are some of the unknown places you're going to be going to next? Well, you know, each season we make about 20 episodes of Expedition Unknown, so it's a big year. You know, people always say, where are you going this year? And I always kind of say, I think everywhere, you know. (laughs) Um, So we are uh, kind of bopping around the world, uh, investigating new mysteries and trying to get a whole new slate of stories together. You know, we we finished airing recently our, our sixth season of the show, and... You know, I sort of feel like we, we upped the bar ourselves a little bit uh, um, for ourselves this year. So now I have the pressure of trying to, trying, to, um, trying to top what we've just done. But we had some really extraordinary episodes that just aired. We did a big two-part special on uh, D-Day, uh, investigating um, Normandy and, and looking at all the work that's being done there to both reveal, you know, continue to reveal secrets from, from this incredibly pivotal invasion, uh, but also to preserve a lot of what uh, is there. So that was a really extraordinary experience for mm. us to be able to, um, we worked with a team that was uh, scuba diving off the coast of the invasion beaches to try to document through a huge sonar and photography survey um, the hundreds of ships that are off the coast of Normandy there from the invasion. Very haunting place. These are right. war graves. But to be able to see them uh, and to share that with our viewers was just uh, absolutely extraordinary experience. Did you have to be conscious of not showing certain things? Because as you said, these are war graves. I mean, what is what are the standards around that? I would think some people might be upset that they're being disturbed. Or is that, am I wrong? No, I, I mean, there, there is a real sensitivity to it. I think the most important standard is to not disturb the actual wreckage. Mm-hmm. So nothing can be brought up to the surface. Nothing can be kind of wrenched over. It's, it's very much a, um, a, a, a survey that is, you know, kind of floating over these wrecks and using very, very high-end uh, technology, something called photogrammetry, which basically takes thousands of high-resolution digital images and then stitches them together into a 3D model. And the reason that's being done is that the ocean is really consuming these wrecks. Mm. Um, they, they're, they're not going to be around uh, in another uh, couple of hundred years. And so this is an opportunity to create a digital archive of these ships as they are now. Um, and so it is a way to honor, I think, and, and respect the people who died there because these are graves that are impermanent. You know, the ocean is just going to reclaim them. So, uh, but a, a really, uh, really emotional experience to go down and to see these huge um, landing ships and yeah. tanks and all sorts of vehicles down there uh, that never made it to the beach. Mm. Uh, and and so, you know, uh, just an extraordinary experience. So Was, we we um, were there any big surprises more? in what you found? down there. there. There were a number. Yeah, I mean, there were a number of them. I think the biggest surprise is that we came across, um, I didn't know what it was. We were down uh, in a fairly deep dive, um, and there was this very strange object sitting next to a pile of wreckage, and I was looking at it, and the, the survey guy that I was with you know, grabbed my arm and told me that it was uh, an unexploded German parachute mine. Uh, so, you know, what's what's really unbelievable is that most of the ships that, that did sink off the coast of the invasion beaches were mostly from mines. You know, the, the Germans had heavily mined that area, and uh, mines are really, both in the water and on land, just incredibly nasty weapons of war. But a lot of these parachute mines were, were dropped down uh, in the ocean, and some of them had magnetic um, 
charges in them that would, you know, if ships passed overhead, they would explode or they had timers in them. Mm. And some of them, some of them never activated because they just hit the water and, and, um, you know, became inert. So this was an unexploded parachute mine that was sitting next to the wreckage of a ship that had been destroyed probably by a sister mine, you know, that, that, that had been active. And so to, to realize that there are still weapons of war, Nazi weapons of war that are active, mm. um, potentially wow. active down there is shocking. So we actually, the, the French Navy is slated to go out and actually detonate it mm. uh, in the spring. Um, but but uh, a reminder that um, this thing that we think of as, you know, a, uh, um, something of the past is still actually right in front of us. You yeah. know, the, the sort of horrors of war are kind of right there still. We are speaking with Josh Gates, who is uh, from the wonderful TV show Expedition Unknown. And Josh, when on your show, you have so many great experts, archaeologists, technicians, people who are doing their best to uncover the past. Have you ever discovered something that they didn't know about? Well, I, uh, you know, I'm always sort of standing in the shadows of giants on the show. You know, I, uh, my, you know, people say to me, oh, you're like Indiana Jones. You run around (laughs) and, you know, have all these adventures. I always kind of say I'm the guy that goes to meet the real Indiana Joneses, you know, Mm. so the, uh, the real experts that are out there on the front lines. But every once in a while, uh, we get to be a part of uh, discovery. You know, we, we are there with them doing the work. We had an extraordinary experience in the jungles of Guatemala. There's a, a really incredible Maya site, a pre-classic Maya site called El Mirador. Uh, It's in the northern jungles of Guatemala near the border of Mexico. And it is a huge, huge site. It is uh, roughly the size of Los Angeles, if Mm. you can get your head around that. Uh, And it may have the largest pyramid in the world by volume. It's not as tall as the Great Pyramid, Mm. but um, maybe the largest pyramid in the world by volume, just sitting in the jungles there. And we uh, helped do a LIDAR survey, which is a laser scanning survey of uh, parts of the jungle around the site. And we were there uh, and helped to document a never-before-seen temple complex in the jungle. So cool. uh, every once in a while, um, you know, I get to be front and center uh, and a part of the team that, that uh, does something like that. And yeah. that is... For me, just you know, immensely gratifying uh, well, to be and a part of discovery. I think that's what makes your your show so visceral, so much fun to watch because you never know what's going to come next, and and it is really fascinating stuff. For anybody tuning in late, we have been so happy to be talking with Josh Gates. He is the host of Expedition Unknown, which you can watch on the Discovery Channel. Thank you so much, Josh, for appearing on the Travel Show. Always a pleasure, and I will see you out on the road. You're listening to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, and we have a great guest back. She is Julie Weed. She is a frequent contributor to The New York Times. Welcome back to The Travel Show, Julie. Thanks. Thanks for having me on again. Well, you brought up a topic for The New York Times that I had never thought of before, but it makes a lot of sense. It's a place where people are naked, so there are etiquette issues. I'm talking, of course, of spas. You wrote about good spa etiquette. What made you think of this topic? 
Um, it's just uh, they just have travel tips, and they're always looking for new ideas on when people are traveling, important things to think about. Okay, so let's go through some of the spa etiquette tips. And this one makes sense, and I am a person who never does this, so I feel now embarrassed. Arrive 15 minutes early or more. Why is that so important specifically for spas? It's important for a couple of reasons. Uh, The first is you're going there to relax, and so to get there late and you're rushing around and trying to throw your robe on and fill out the forms. It just it doesn't put you into a spa kind of a mood. It also, it doesn't allow you to sort of soak up the atmosphere, drink a cup of tea, go to the steam room. And, you know, some, in some people's minds, worse than that, etiquette-wise, is that you might be pushing back appointments for other people if you come too late. Right. You're stressing out your, your therapist because they're trying to give you the whole treatment. But if you're a bit late, um, it kind of can push everybody back. So just getting there 15 minutes early or more can just give you time to relax, do all the things that you need to do, and get into the vibe. So do most spas expect that the time you are booked is the time the actual treatment will start? Or do they pad it a little bit? Because you're right, you do have to, You at basic, I mean, you may not have time to do all the relaxing you were discussing, but basically you do have to change into a robe, which can take people a bit of time. Yeah, for sure. If your appointment for, say, a massage is from 10.30 to 11.30, that's the time that you have on the table with them. And so spas will tell you to come early to, you know, they'll give you, they'll give you a notice that you should come early to get into your robe and such. But yeah, for me, I love my massage. I don't want one minute of that spent out in the hallway, you know, doing anything else. Right. And then the next two tips you gave were about not spoiling the atmosphere for everybody else. What is the most common way that, that people really make spa stays a lot less relaxing for others? I think it's basically noise, whether yeah. you're talking too loudly to your friends uh, who you came with, which is really fun. <laughs> right. Or you if you're in a bridal in party, phone. perhaps, and you're all exactly. giggling and screaming and yeah. Exactly. Or maybe you, you're like, oh, I really can't miss any messages from work. And then your phone is like beeping with text messages. It's so distracting. And it's not even good for you. You just want to leave that all is that all in your locker? Anything digital? You want you want a digital detox when you go to the spa, even just for an hour or two. Yeah, well, I thought what was crazy was you said that people will sometimes stream videos in spas. That's nuts. Yeah, people think that other people can't hear because oh, it's just on the quietest thing. But boy, you know that sound will carry in a in a, in a quiet room. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing you have to do seems like common sense, but probably a lot of people don't do it. You need to communicate with your therapist, and that's part of the etiquette. How do the two interplay? Uh, The reason it's etiquette is because so many people these days complain online after something bad has happened. They're like, oh, I went to the spa and such a thing. I didn't like it for this reason. But honestly, maybe you just should have told the person while it was happening, like, I like a lighter touch on my massage or I need a subtler scent, you know, in the Mm -hmm. room or I need hypoallergenic products. Not only will it not sort of shame them after for something they didn't even know they were doing wrong or or give the spa kind of a bad name, but you'll enjoy your, your treatment that much more because you've said what you needed and they are happy to accommodate you. Right. And the other, this seems very obvious, but I think it has to be said, practice good hygiene. What does that mean? That just means shower and dry off before you go into the sauna, plunge pool, hydro pools, any kind of shared water experience. Um, Just keep your towel wrapped around your private parts when you go and sit on the hot benches in the the sauna and just avoid your skin uh, directly touching 
Right, that, where right. other people are sitting. And t- towards uh, creating a, a nice, restful experience, you say people need to leave their children at home. I can't even imagine bringing a child to a spa, but I guess that happens. Yeah, some people just show up with their child. They're like, oh, they're just 9 or 10. You know, they'll be totally good. But it's it's a place of quiet and calm. And, and you just put the staff in an uncomfortable position if you're trying to bring your child along. And, and the other guests will just not be happy. Right. And the the last tip you give is, uh, I think, has a lot of legs to it. Be aware of local norms. I guess the spa experience will shift dramatically from, from destination to destination. That's true. In, in different parts of the world, spas just have different, whether it's just tipping practices, what people expect um, from gratuities, or just acceptable nudity. There's some spas in countries where just men and women can walk around naked like in a co-ed space and it's not a big deal. You know, obviously that would not fly in the United States. Right. Well, it's a terrific article. I urge everybody to go to the New York Times site. Once again, we've been speaking with Julie Weed. She has an article called The Best Tips for Good Spa Etiquette. Thank you so much, Julie, for appearing on The Travel Show. Thank you so much. You're listening to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Frommer here with my dad. And I'm Arthur Frommer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And uh, for the end of this hour, I thought it might be interesting uh, to just do a rundown of everything you can find on frommers.com right now. That's our website. And in... In this time where we're taping this in uh, March, most people are actually it's April now. uh, Most people are staying at home and still they want to scratch that travel itch. As my father talked about at the beginning of the show, there's nothing better for the soul than travel. And so we're trying to help people find ways to travel in a virtual way. So we have, for example, an article on really interesting live streaming videos from places all over the world, like in one of the national parks in, I think it's South Africa, they've set up a a camera right next to a watering hole. And so you can watch the elephants and the zebras and the lions coming to this watering hole to get sustenance. Uh, There's another camera set up in Yellowstone so you can watch the geysers erupt. Uh, So we have a a listing of all the different really interesting uh, uh, live feed cameras that you can watch. We also have a, a, a really great article on uh, fabulous travel movies, and we tell you all about how to find those uh, if you want to stream them. We list our best travel podcasts, which includes this show. This show is not just on radio. It's also a travel podcast. But there are interesting travel podcasts from the Smithsonian, from a guy named Chris Christensen, who writes the Amateur Traveler blog. Uh, There's a whole slew of really great podcasts that will give you a break from your living room or your kitchen and and take you out into the world, at least in your mind. Uh, And then we have a nice thing that we're offering 
if you want to take this time where you're probably stuck at home and learn another language, Fromers has uh, partnered with the language app Fluent Forever. And if you use the code Fromers, you will get a free month subscription. Uh, and it's a really cutting edge new app that teaches language, I think, in a smarter way than many other apps do, a, a way that uses your brain more. So visit Fromers.com. The final thing we have up there is my father's wonderful, wonderful essay. Not the final thing. There are many things. But his wonderful essay on how travel changed my life. Uh, we started this hour talking about the essay but I think you'll want to revisit it. It's a very moving piece to, to read, Dad. Uh, so bravo to you. Pauline, for- thank you very much for saying that. I have felt that that uh, impact on my life many, many times and very, and very deeply, and especially during this time of national emergency. Let us all hope that we will sooner than later uh, return to a stage where we are able actually to travel and not simply to read about it. Yes, absolutely. All right. We have to say goodbye for this hour. We thank you for listening. At least let us well wish you a hearty bon voyage, even if you're only going to the kitchen. See you next week.